0: Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. Uh, Stadium soccer is so much better, on a different order better, than television Soccer, Because at the stadium, you get the panorama. You get the big picture. See, soccer, if you aren't sold yet, is this beautiful game of dynamic, ever-moving angles. And these angles are best experienced in person. In panorama. In the stadium. Now that said... We have a great stadium here in Columbus, but most of the soccer I watch is on television, right? Uh, So if I have to watch soccer on TV, I want the camera angle to be as high as possible. This is not too much to ask. (laughs) Sometimes I'm watching Liverpool, for instance, play a home team with a small stadium, and the camera angle is just unacceptably low. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Am I all alone? I am not all alone, by the way. Check this out. Locked <laughs> English stadiums and TV camera angle. All right, all right. Well, I want to say the same thing about the Bible. It is crucial to have a high camera angle on the Bible. Yes, we must zoom in on the action, as we often do at Hope. But we have to fly high in order to see the big story as well, to see all the angles, to see everything interlocking, to see the beauty of God's story, which is why we are taking the time to look through the Bible, to walk through the Bible one book at a time. And we started this journey last fall in the book of Genesis and 43 books later, we are ready to look at John's gospel this morning. It's funny, if you look up ancient portraits of John, almost all of them have an eagle next to him. It's kind of weird, right? But the ancient church liked to compare the Gospels to the four living creatures around the throne that we hear about in Revelation 4, verse 7, that's echoed from The Old Testament prophets and John, they thought, was the most like the eagle. Why? Because John in his gospel has the highest camera angle. John had a lot of life experience with Jesus, but John waited, it seems, to write it all down. And so he told the story of Jesus with a lifetime of reflection. In other words, John gives us all the stadium view of Jesus. It's full of deep reflection. It's full of big picture connections. It's full of deep symbolism. Now why did John do this? And what does it have to do with you? Well, we're going to pray before we find out. Lord, would the words in my mouth... Would the ponderings and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer? Lord, open our hearts' eyes so that we would see Jesus this morning with the eyes of faith. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I play tennis once a week and I mostly lose. I play the same person every week, and I mostly lose. But the other day, I brought my son along because he wanted to play soccer in the adjacent field. And most of my match, I was playing absolutely terrible. I think it was like 6-0 in the first set. But towards the end, my son, he stopped practicing soccer, and he sat port side. And guess what happened? My confidence rose. I loosened up. I played a lot better. And I told my His partner, I said, I'm going to bring my son every single time, but this is great. I see this same thing basically in reverse all the time. Sometimes when I'm watching my youngest play soccer, for instance, I catch him scanning the sidelines, and I give him a thumbs up, and he has a sort of smirk and a boost in his confidence results, Always. This week, I actually learned from the Christian psychologist, Kurt Thompson, that the second we are born, we are looking for someone looking for us. We're seeking eyes. And as Thompson says, this is not a fluke of our design, this is actually a feature of how God made us. We are designed to experience The knowing and the loving gaze of another person. So I read this obvious but overlooked observation by philosopher Joseph Piper. He writes, a person blossoms when undergoing the experience of being loved. And I would simply add, with many others, the experience of being known as well. Of being loved and being known. So you could say the reverse. We wither in the absence of being known and being loved. And as many others have said, we blossom when we know that we are known. And loved to that same extent. And so I think we spend our whole life searching and looking for that look. For that face. We long for this gaze. The eyes that will put our souls to rest. Which raises the question what if we were all designed to experience the loving and knowing eyes of God? What if that is the question underneath every single question? What if that is the search underneath every single search? What if that is the ambition underneath every single ambition in our life? What if that is the core longing underneath every single core longing in our life? Well, when I read John, I get the sense that he experienced that. That he saw the knowing and loving eyes of God in flesh, Jesus. John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That is the core of John's self-understanding. I am loved. I am beloved. I am beloved. That is who I am. Who am I? I am beloved by Jesus. My eyes have met. the eyes that know me and love me. To be beloved by Jesus is to be seen and to be loved to the same depth by God. And it seems like John, his whole mission now is to spread the news. We're going to encounter John's writings for two more weeks. He, read, he wrote the Gospels, he wrote three letters and he wrote Revelation. And you get the sense that his whole life mission in all of these writings is to say, I want you to say the same thing as me. I want you to insert your name there. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. I want you to see his eyes. Seeing you. John is beloved. He is known and loved, but he doesn't hoard this experience. He doesn't create a secret society, a clique, an inner circle. He wants all of you to experience the same this morning. How do I know? Well, he actually says so. He says it very clearly. Toward the end of his gospel, he writes this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in his book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. In other words, John carefully selects a few events in Jesus' life, calls them signs, so that we would believe, so that we would receive, that we would rest And that we would move from always searching to beloved. That we would move from exhausted to beloved. That we would move from shamed to beloved. And so this is how I want you to see and think of John's Gospel. A lovingly curated art museum. One of my favorite places in the world is The Slam, the St. Louis Art Museum, The Slam. It sits atop a hill in Forest Park in St. Louis, which is bigger than Central Park in New York City, and this art museum is free of charge, and it is an amazing place. Well, Years ago, I learned that the St. Louis Art Museum owns a painting by one of my favorite artists, Makoto Fujimura. But it wasn't hanging on their walls. And so I emailed the curator, as one does. And he emailed me back. He emailed me back. He actually sent me a courteous email back. And said something to the effect of, yes, his works are very, very, very important. And he maintains a very, very old and ancient artistic practice that he himself has been an apprentice in. But sadly, there is not enough wall And there are too many paintings in storage. So check back in like a few decades. And you might see it hanging on the wall. So in that moment, I learned something. I learned that being a curator is a very difficult job, probably, and a very intentional job. The curator uses all of their expertise, all of their entrusted vision, to select some works instead of other works, and then arrange them this way, instead of that way. Why? So that when I walk in, I experience maximal beauty. And John's Gospel is the same way. It's very intentional. It says it right there. Jesus' whole life is beauty. Jesus' whole life is important. But there's only so much wall In John's scroll. And John says, I have selected these signs. These works of Jesus. I mean, just imagine how difficult it must have been, if you were John, to pick from this sort of lifetime of memory storage. It's almost as if John actually apologizes at the very end. If you have the Bibles open, you can look. Like the very last verse, he says, I'm quoting, Jesus also did many other things, and if they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. That is a curator's apology right there. I am so sorry. I know, I know, but there's only so much wall. But here's the thing. John pulled a few of these works from the storage of his memory so that you would see and experience beauty and that you would, as he said, receive the knowing and loving gaze of Jesus and have life. And have life. One of John's favorite words. Life. Real life. Life of the age to come. Life when everything sad and broken is fixed and undone. Real resurrection life. He wants you to have that. He wants you to see the eyes that see you and love you. And so I want to just do a quick tour this morning of the museum called the Gospel of John. John carefully, as I said, curates this museum, this beauty of Jesus in all kinds of ways. And I just want to highlight three that strike me in my studies Close readers of John notice three things a seven day creation week, seven signs, and seven I am statements. So let's first look at the seven day creation week. Things in the Gospel of John, if you look at verse 1, start like Genesis in the beginning. And then what follows in the first couple chapters, really the first chapter of John, culminating in the second chapter, is a carefully structured week. John gives us the verbal cues. So that in day one, we see John the Baptist baptizing him. And then day two, at Jesus' baptism, John writes in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus. And then day three, John records in verse 35, the following day, when Jesus calls his first disciples. And then verse 43, Jesus calls more disciples. The next day, Jesus decided to go out to Galilee. We hear nothing about day 5 and day 6, but we know that the wedding in Cana happens three days later, because John says in verse 1 of chapter 2, on the third day. How is that phrase ringing a bell, the third day? Well, if you do the math, John is saying, with Jesus comes creation week, but this is new creation. The world is broken and dying, but behold, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. This decaying and dying world lets us down, but at the end of this creation week, Jesus makes one. Yes, Jesus has work to do. John records it. He must die on a cross for our sins. But at this wedding, the wedding in Canaan, he is giving weary men, weary women, like you and me, a preview of that future day promised by Isaiah, promised by Jeremiah. In Jerusalem, the Lord of Heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the peoples of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear well-aged wine. The best wine that Jesus makes out of the water. And in Jeremiah 31, they will come home and sing songs of joy on the heights of Jerusalem. And they will be radiant because of the Lord's good gifts, the abundant crops of grain and new wine. And there are more. But the point is this. John wants you to see this beauty that John... That Jesus himself invites you into his new creation. And I want to ask you this morning, has your weary soul received the invitation? The invitation to life. Resurrection life. New life. Which takes us to the seven signs in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, in John's storehouse, there are millions of signs, millions of pictures, millions of events from the life of Jesus that he could hang on his wall. But he chooses these seven. Sign one he turns water into wine. Jesus says in verse 11 of chapter 2, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee. And why? Man- manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Sign number two. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Chapter five. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with mud, and he said to them, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And he went and washed and came back sea. And as we heard read, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. These signs are in the first half of the Gospel of John. And that's why across church history, the first half of John's Gospel is called the Book of Signs. These signs point to the glory of of Jesus. They point to the glory of God, which is why the second half of John is called the Book of Glory. It really all takes place in one small time frame, Passover. Much of it is Jesus talking to His disciples before His crucifixion. And it's called the Book of Glory because everything that happens in the second half of the Gospel of John relates to Jesus' most glorious sign. We could call it His eighth sign. It's the raising of Lazarus. is just a prelude for the sign of all signs. Which again happens during Passover, the Lamb of God, who is victorious by being slain on the cross. And yet, as Mary seeks to honor his dead body, she is shocked to find an empty tomb. So she's weeping when a man approaches her. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, I love this detail, Jesus said her name. Imagine it. Hear it with the ears of your imagination. Hear that. Hear Hear it. Hear Jesus say that and see what happens. She turned and said to him in there, Rabbonah, which means teacher. The shepherd hears voice. Amen? Sheep hear the shepherd's voice. Why does Mary think Jesus is a gardener? Any guesses? John is a poet and a pastor. He's not letting that detail go. He wants us to all see that Jesus is the second Adam. And this is indeed a new gardener. I've always wondered why Jesus says woman. Could it be that John wants us to think of the Garden of Eden, where we meet woman? He is the true and perfect Adam who restores Eden, who brings new creation and who makes everything new again. And this, for John, is the sign of all signs, the sign that all seven signs points to, and he wants you to see it. Again, he is curating a beauty museum, where you come in and you are just struck by it, and you receive it. Which takes us finally to the seven I Am statements. John gives us seven I Am statements from Jesus. To folks who long for a deliverer like Moses, and provision from God like manna from heaven, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. To folks remembering the pillar of light in the wilderness, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. To folks who are being abused by the religious leaders, He says, I am the gate for the sheep, I am the safety door, and he offers security. To those who need a perfect leader, but also a perfect sacrifice, he says, I am the good shepherd. Your shepherds are bad. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his lives. To his friends experiencing the trauma of loss, he says, I am the resurrection and the life To scared disciples who don't know which way to go, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And to anyone who wants real life and real growth, He says, I am the grapevine. Abiding me. Just stay with me. Just stay with me. Just stay with me. Just stay with me. Each of these deserve a lifetime of reflection, but this morning, all I need to do is call attention to a verse we are familiar with, From Exodus 3, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. There is only one I am, and that I am is Yahweh. And so Jesus is saying something audacious seven times over in John's gospel. I am the great I am. I am God in flesh. And John is careful to tell us that Jesus is God in a way tabernacling among us. So, do you want to see and be seen by God, then look at Jesus. That is John's heartbeat. My wife recently went to Washington, D.C., and because she's an art teacher and not a civics teacher, her favorite part was not the White House, but the portrait museum. Well, what we just did is walk through a portrait museum. John saw Jesus, and he wants you to see him too. That's why he's called across church history, John the Evangelist. And what this means for you is two things. Behold. Just simply look. Look around the museum. I once heard Pastor Tim Keller encourage a room full of weary pastors to scour the Gospels until you see the beauty of Jesus, and then hang on to that. And I offer that advice to you. Allow it to melt your heart. Take a sign. If you've ever been in a museum, sometimes you get stuck on your tracks and you just sit on that bench in the middle of the room and you just are... Have you ever seen that or experienced that? Sometimes you walk into a room in a museum and you see someone just sitting there. And you feel bad walking in front of them. Okay? I want you to do that. I want you to walk into John's gospel and I want you to find your seat. I want you to find your seat. He shared about the moment when Jesus reaches through death and pulls out Taliban. For me this past week, it was seeing Jesus' anger at death. It helped me process my anger at my dad's death and his manner of death. Behold Jesus. Behold his beauty. Sit down and just look. And then believe. And then believe. This is John's purpose, that you would believe. That you would behold and then believe In fact, John is careful to record a benediction from Jesus just for you. Right before his purpose statement in chapter 20, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Pull out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve Thomas but believe. This is the resurrected Jesus who, by the way, is wearing his scars. That by itself deserves a lifetime of gazing. The very fact that our resurrected Jesus wears his scars for eternity says something very profound about our scars. You need to sit and look at that, phrase. He says to Thomas, do not disbelieve but believe. And Thomas said, my Lord, and Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? And here's a benediction. This is a benediction. Okay? After every church service, we have a benediction. This is a formal benediction from the Lord Jesus. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Okay. John knows, as an evangelist, he knows that you cannot see Jesus like he saw Jesus. You cannot lean on Jesus like John leaned on Jesus. You cannot place your fingers in his side like Thomas placed his fingers in his side. Which is why he graciously I think provides this benediction this beatitude from the Lord Jesus himself for all of you. And for all the millions of people who have read his gospel and seen Jesus with the eyes of faith and believed. And more importantly has been seen by Jesus and been known and been loved. Blessed is a Greek word, makarios, it's a word that describes unflappable joy it's a joy that is not mere happiness, it is a joy that comes from having a seat at God's table and it never being taken away one scholar, Leland Ryken says to pronounce a blessing like Jesus does here, is to do more than express a wish it is in some sense to confer the quality of blessedness on a person or group Jesus does not just wish you joy in believing this morning. He gives you joy in believing this morning. There is a soul rest when you are seen and loved. There is a soul rest when you are seen and you are loved. And that is the blessing Jesus gives to all who believe. And this blessing, by the way, helps us wait for that day when we actually do see Jesus without eyes of faith, but as my friend puts it, resurrected eyeballs. When with our resurrected eyeballs, we see Jesus' resurrected eyeballs. Can you imagine that day? We wait until that day. In Revelation, John again says, they will see His face. Friends, that's what we're looking for. We want to see Jesus, but more importantly, we want to be seen by Jesus. Amen? And John tells us, if your trust is in Jesus this morning, you already have. You already have. Lord, thank you for John, and thank you that he wrote this book. Thank you for loving him, so that he could call himself beloved. And Lord, would we... Ever been as much your disciple as him. Walk away from this message as your. And it's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.